Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. All right, so today's reading comes from Acts 9, uh, verses 32 to 43. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became ill and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood round him, crying and showing him the ropes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. And now I'll just pray for Mafi. Uh, dear God, I pray that um, you would speak through Mafi today, and that your word would empower and encourage us for the week ahead. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good, af- good afternoon, church. And good afternoon, online church. Good afternoon, physical church. Good afternoon, people who are going to be listening to this and watching this uh, in the days, weeks, and months to come. It is good to be here, right? Guys, it's good to see everyone here. It's amazing. Guys, we are going to continue our next installment on surprising power to heal. And um, I, I don't know what your experience with healing is. I don't know what, what your thoughts about healing are, and I'm not sure what, what kind of baggage or emotional thoughts or experience that you're coming into the hall today or coming onto the Zoom call today with regards to healing. So I, I, I want to encourage you, if you've got questions, if you're, things you're unsure of, I would love to chat to you afterwards, either afterwards today, maybe later in the week, maybe even in the next couple of months. Um, today we're going to be looking at the idea of two miracles, Three views with one hope. So two miracles, three views and one hope. And the big idea is hope for healing for our world. So two miracles. As we jump, as we jump into the text today, the backdrop to the two miracles that we, re- we read about show that in the power of the Spirit, Jesus, through Peter, has victory over disease and has victory over death. So victory over disease. Peter is set off. He's going about the country, he's visiting other believers, other churches, and then he comes to this place called Lydda, and he meets Aeneas. It doesn't actually say if Aeneas is a disciple, if he's a believer, we we, we simply don't know. Some commentators reckon he is, other commentators reckon he's not, but it doesn't really matter. All we know is that he's been paralyzed and he's been bedridden for eight years. So having known previously what it was like to walk, what what, what it's like to have, have all the freedoms that we have, He's had them taken away the past eight years. 
And so for eight years, he's had to be cared for. He's had to have somebody wash him. He's had to have somebody feed him, put, put him to bed, so to speak. He's been vulnerable. Somebody to take him to the toilet, perhaps. He's been completely vulnerable at the mercy of others. And Peter rocks up in verse 34, says, Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, roll up your mat. And then immediately Aeneas gets up and he rolls up his mat. And so what do we see here in the story of Aeneas? We see victory over disease. You know, the passage actually intends to show us that Jesus has authority over disease. He has victory over disease. The idea is that in this instant, the Messiah heals you. Or uh, he heals you here and now. And note that Peter actually didn't say, uh, Peter heals you. Or I'm going to come and heal you. He just announces that Jesus heals you. Peter didn't claim to have power to heal uh, Aeneas. Peter was simply the instrument. He was simply the vessel that God was using to heal Aeneas. And interestingly, Jesus is the source of the supernatural. Jesus gets the credit and the glory. Sure, it's Peter that's doing it, but it's coming through Jesus. So we've got victory over disease. We've victory over death. So following straight afterwards in a city nearby, it's around 10 miles away. So I think if, if you're any kind of walker, you're probably chatting three or four hours, or if you're a student, maybe an hour and a half. So around 10 miles away, we come across a disciple called Tabitha. Her Greek name was Dorcas. I think we, we read it in the Bible as Dorcas, but in Aramaic, she's called Tabitha. So we'll stick with Tabitha today. I don't think we've got any Dorcases on our call today. But if we do, then in Aramaic, your name is Tabitha, which is a lovely name. We know she was a follower of Jesus, She was known for doing good. She was known for helping the poor. She was held in high regard. And we see in verse 37 that she becomes sick and she dies. Her body was washed. It was prepared for burial. Her loved ones are weeping. Everyone's mourning. Peter is sent for. They know that Peter is nearby in a town like 10 10 miles away. So Peter's sent for. Peter comes and there's all the widows and everyone's mourning. And if you've been to an Irish wake, you'll know what that's like. And Peter sends everybody out of the room. He gets down on his knees and he begins to pray. And after praying, he stands up and he says, Tabitha, get up. And she gets up. Wow. In both of these stories, we see the presence of Jesus Christ in his people. And we see the power of Jesus Christ through his people. You know, it's almost the the same word for word that what Jesus does in the Gospels. In John 5, lying at at a pool of Bethsaida in Jerusalem is a paralyzed man. He's been paralyzed all his life. And Jesus walks up to him and he says, rise up, pick up your mat and walk. And he does. Or in Mark 5, you've got Jairus' daughter. And so she's died and the mourners are in the room. Jesus comes in, he puts everybody out. You see, it's the same. And And he says, get up. He says the exact same phrase as what Peter has just said, obviously calling her by a different name, but it's the same phrase. Peter is simply doing what he sees Jesus doing. Peter sees Jesus' words and he sees his actions and he does the same. We're seeing the power and the presence of Jesus at work in the people of Christ. We're seeing the kingdom of Christ advancing through the people. We're seeing Peter, through the power of the Spirit, bring hope to a broken world. But don't miss it. Do not miss this. We've got to be careful that when we're looking at the trees, we don't miss the forest. As we marvel at the miracles, so often we can miss the message. What's the result? 
look on the screen. Look at nine, chapter 9, verse 35. When they saw him, they turned to the Lord. So Aeneas was healed. He was paralyzed. Now he is standing. He is all good. And what happens? They turn to the Lord. 942, many believed and they turned to the Lord. We're seeing signs and wonders as, as demonstrations of the kingdom of God breaking in to the lives of ordinary believers. The signs and wonders point towards a king and his kingdom. That's Jesus, the one who has victory over disease and the one who has victory over death. Church, it's not, it's not signs and wonders for the sake of it, but it's for the advancement of the kingdom and the gospel. So we've seen in Stephen, we've seen in Philip, we've saw in Saul, and now Peter, the surprising power demonstrated in their lives. And we've got to ask ourselves, well, how does this apply to me today? What's expected of me? How am I meant to follow that? Sure, get, getting persecuted, I, I, I could maybe do that. But healing a paralyzed man? Raising a woman from the dead? Come on. I think it's no coincidence that we're doing surprising power to heal on this Sunday, which just happens to be Pentecost Sunday. We're going to look at three views now, of three ways we can read this passage, three lenses that we could put on. I want to tell you the first view is to approach it as a hardened skeptic, is to deny miracles. I, I, I haven't chatted to you all before. I don't know where, where you stand. I don't even know who's all on the call today. Uh, perhaps you're, you're, you would say you're a hardened skeptic. You deny miracles. You don't believe in them. But belief in miracles and belief in God actually go hand in hand and vice versa. So if God exists, then of course he could perform a miracle through his people because a miracle by definition is something extraordinary. But if you deny God's existence, therefore it doesn't exist, and you believe that we live in a closed physical universe with no greater being outside of ourselves that can, that can break in or, or control, then of course you deny the possibility of miracles. And so this is how a secular person would end up viewing it. So they don't happen today. It doesn't sit right to my experience. What I'm hearing cannot be scientifically verified and it can't be measured. Therefore, it's so hard for me to believe that this ever happened in the first place. So we can come in with a skeptical mind. We don't believe that the miracle has ever happened in the first place. So this is naturalism. So what we're saying is nothing supernatural can ever happen. All we have is nature and we are the products of nature. The problem, however, is if, is if our minds and our, our cognitive abilities are, are simply the product of nature, then how can we trust them to be true? How can we trust them to be true? How can then we trust that naturalism is true? And so whenever we begin to go down this, this line, we actually find that the belief in naturalism is in itself self-defeating. It can't stand up to its own test. And so for the Christian, the, the, the person that does believe in miracles, the centerpiece of our faith relies on a miracle. It relies on the supernatural, Christ rising from the dead. So to the hardened skeptic, naturalism is self-defeating. It can't stand its own test. Therefore, the question is, what, what is preventing you from believing in the supernatural? You know, it may possibly be the second view. Peddling a prosperity gospel. Do you like my alliteration? One of the most dangerous things, church, that we can do is to individualize what we're reading. We suddenly focus on the miracle. Look what happened then. 
Miracles can happen. It must happen to us. If it doesn't, then we lack faith. That's a line of thought. Or if it doesn't, then there must be something wrong with us. Something wrong with me. Perhaps I've got to try harder. Perhaps I've done something last week that means I couldn't do the miracle this week. Church, false teachers will try to convince you that you need to give more, more, more effort, more time, more energy, more money. You name it, more is the name of the game. And, and often it's wrapped up in church language. It's, it's quite often wrapped up in a nice flowery language, like sowing a seed of faith, perhaps. And you know, it's, it's not just peddled by, by Americans. It doesn't just come across the Atlantic. The Irish have been doing this. The Irish institutions have been doing this for as long as I ever remember. Paying for forgiveness. You give this money and then you get this forgiveness. Or if you do A, B, and C, if you say this prayer, this exact prayer, word for word, then this will happen. And it places demands of performance upon the people. It plays on their insecurities for personal gain. It happens in business. It happened in church. It's a curse of self-promotion. A prosperity gospel church is going to over-promise and it's going to under-deliver. And I can promise you that. The problem is found whenever heaven is promised now. But yet it doesn't match our experience. There's a subtle gap that we can, we can find ourselves in. We're promised heaven, but this is our experience. There is a gap. And the gap is between hope and reality. Often when, it, when our hope and reality don't align, we experience hurt. It's not just theoretical. There, there, there's deep implications that shape how we read scripture, how we think about God, how we approach the subject of healing, how you're sitting here or standing here or, or wherever you're at. These things are shaping your experience and they're shaping your thought process and they're actually shaping your heart. Because whenever you hope for something that hurts, whenever you, what you hope for doesn't come about. So we can find ourselves in a desert. So for the Christian, the, the promises of God can actually make our lives worse because we're holding out for something that doesn't ever seem to arrive. And so it would be so much easier not to hold out hope what, whatsoever. Because if there was no hope, then we wouldn't have to deal with the tension and the disappointment of this gap, this desert space between hope and reality. Maybe you find yourselves in the desert. We can also find ourselves in denial. We avoid the desert. We avoid the tension of, of unmet hopes. Instead, we, we opt for a, a denial. We, we suppress our feelings. We suppress our thoughts. We claim that everything is A-OK. -okay. We never actually address the festering wounds of undelivered promises. And we begin to deny the reality of sickness and death. If I just speak this out, then I'm going to be well. If I just pray this prayer and believe it hard enough, everything's going to be great. We find ourselves in denial. Another implication is we find ourselves in determination, or determinationism, if that's even a word. We avoid the, the desert, the tension of unmet hopes, Absolutely, we, we avoid de denial. And we say we're determined. I'm going to face it again. You know, I've faced this battle before and I have won it. I've been strong. We're determined. I'll go at it with all my strength and I will overcome. And they're bold and they're brave words and they might sound like they're faith-filled. But what happens whenever death comes knocking and we're knocked for six? Determination doesn't seem to cut it. It doesn't seem to bridge this gap between hope and reality. And fourthly, it can lead to despair. In other words, it's better, better not to hope whatsoever. 
Hopelessness becomes our, our only reality. Church, I want to tell you that a false gospel will absolutely over-promise and it will under-deliver and the implications can be absolutely catastrophic. That's why I want to give you a third view, one that I would suggest we would do well to hold on to. That's a gospel of grace. I want to suggest this is one where we avoid throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So here's a couple of questions. What's the main emphasis of the passage? Did you get caught up in the two miracles? What, what was your main focus on? Did you see the result? Did, did you miss the result? In Lydda and in Joppa, there were results. Verse 35, they turned to the Lord. Verse 42, they turned to the Lord and many believed in the Lord. But I want to tell you, church, that the emphasis is not on the two miracles, as great as they are. The emphasis is on two other things. One, the miracles authenticate the message. Jesus is revealed in the words and works of Peter, and they received Jesus for themselves. They became believers. And secondly, maybe less noticeable, look who the audience were. Take a moment and look who the audience were on the screen behind me or on the screen beside me. In my preparation, this absolutely flattened me. Look at 39. Who was in the upper room? All the widows. They've all experienced death. They've all previously lost their husbands. They're all well acquainted with death. And so the widows are now celebrating their friend's healing, their, their friend Tabitha coming to life. And the widows are celebrating. Imagine the joy, imagine the relief, imagine the wonder whenever their friend sat up and came back to life. I don't even know what I would have said. The widows have witnessed this incredible miracle. But in this celebration, they also have to acknowledge that God chose not to do the same with their husbands. And that's absolutely vital. God chose not to do the same with their husbands. God chose to allow their husbands to die, but yet they got to see their friend Tabitha being raised from the dead. The widows experienced attention. They've seen and they've heard how God can perform miracles, but he chooses not to in every instance. They've heard of Aeneas being paralyzed and now being healed. And now Tabitha having died and been raised to life, they're reminded that this surprising power of the Spirit shows that the Lord has authority and ultimate victory over disease and over death. And so the widows have a hope for healing in their world. They have a taste of what's to come. They've got an authenticating sign that actually resulted in so many people believing in the Lord. Church, I want to tell you that we live with the same tensions as these widows whenever we see and hear and experience the miracles that God does and he can perform. But the reality for so many of us is, is that often we, we, we know of, of times when the Lord hasn't healed. Or times whenever it seems our prayers aren't answered. A dear friend of mine, Mark, was in a bad accident uh, as a 16-year-old back in 1996. He spent six months in hospital and he survived the crash. I remember as a, as a child, I was watching cartoons and I got a phone call uh, 
at stupid o'clock in the morning from uh, an hysterical family. I remember grabbing the phone, rushing upstairs and handing it to mum and dad. Mark survived. He was paralysed from the neck down. He spent six months in hospital. He didn't know what way it would go. He'd be confined to a motorised wheelchair from that day onwards. His family, it's a family of ten, would then become his primary carers as the, the house needed, needed updated, as the house needed the right supports, but then as, as a new car is needed to support this new way of life which for him at times felt like no life at all. As a 16-year-old that is athletic, six foot four, and a, a sports star, all of a sudden being put into a wheelchair at my head height. But he had marks a Christian, follower of Jesus, gave his life to the Lord as a child. In the wheelchair, he believed in the Lord, and he trusted God for total healing. He knew that it was assured for all of eternity, which put into perspective his hopes and his expectations of the here and now. It wasn't defeatism. He wasn't, he wasn't accepting defeat and saying, okay, well, um, I'm defeated now and I'll, I'll have a great life in eternity. It hurt and he grieved and he longed and he wanted healing and we prayed so much. So many different things. There's moments uh, where, where there's a call, people to come up to the front, and he gets wheeled up time and time again. Specific prayer meetings, specific times in hospital, specific moments for prayer. Mark didn't have a low expectation that God could heal, but neither did he have an unrealistic one that if God didn't heal him, then he would fall out with him. Mark knew that he had a sober judgment that God is sovereign, that he brings healing and that he holds the answers and that he is in control. He never denied how tough it was. As a family of 10 adjusted to a new reality, there's so many tears that were shed. So many was contending in prayer for his healing. But yet we trust in God's goodness. A goodness that wasn't dependent on a favorable outcome for us or a favorable outcome for him. That was 25 years ago. And a month ago today on the 23rd of Mark, or 23rd of April, Mark went to be with Jesus. On the 23rd of April, Mark experienced true and full and complete healing. And for whatever reason, we do not know God chose to take, take Mark. He chose to bring him home. He gifted Mark 25 years of life after the accident. And so many of us prayed and often so much cried so many tears for healing that he would walk again. The anguish and the, and the grief that, that the family experienced over these years was actually nothing compared to the joy that they received as a community of people got together. Mark had a hope for healing in his world. And that hope was Jesus. And he knew that whether Jesus chose to heal him there or whether he chose to heal him in eternity, his hope was placed in Jesus. And so for us, and so for the family, we don't need to go into the desert. We don't need to fall into denial. We don't need to go into determinationism or, or despair. Why? Because there's a kingdom that we all long for. 
And God has said eternity in the human heart. We hurt and we long for healing. We long for something even better. And sometimes God does break in in his sovereignty and, and bring about a supernatural healing. And that is incredible. But remember this, it is temporary and it points towards a greater eternal healing. And church, that is why I'm convinced that we have one hope. We have a hope for healing for our world. You know, in, in the world of COVID, we, we long for the vaccine to roll out across the globe. We long for protection to the vulnerable. Uh, they allow the health services to fully operate again in, in all these other areas where they've had to hit pause. And we long for some form of social normality again. And medicine is a fantastic solution. Don't, don't hear me wrong. Medicine is an incredible uh, solution. It's a God-given gift that we're called to steward well, but it's only a temporary option. As wonderful as medical advances are, they, they cannot provide an eternal solution. So therefore, the, the Christian hope is not fixed upon the miracle itself, but it's on what the miracle proclaims. That Jesus has authority over disease. That Jesus has authority over death. Therefore, we have an enduring hope for healing for our world. I don't know about you, but all, all the, the suffering and the death are around me makes me long for a better world, even just in this past month as, as I've tried to process this death of my friend. I long for a better world. I long for an enduring kingdom under the rule and reign of Jesus where there is no sickness, where there is no suffering, where every tear is wiped away. And but what I'm doing is I'm longing for something, but I'm not denying the reality that we grieve and we hurt in the place of where we find ourselves. But it does place my grief and it does place my hurt and my loss and my pain in rightful context, knowing that for every follower of Jesus, there is a greater hope and the best is absolutely yet to come. So we live with this tension. Craig, can I, can I just invite you back up? Church, we, we, we've got to live in this tension. In light of these two miracles, in light of these three views and this one hope, I have a couple of suggestions that will help ground this reality in our lives. First of, is evangelism. These miracles caused people to fall in love with Jesus and follow Jesus. These miracles were not to proclaim, hey, look what I can do, but it's actually to draw people onto Jesus. If you don't follow Jesus, and, or if you haven't surrendered your life to him, I want to challenge you, where do you place your hope? Where do you find hope for healing in the world? I would love to know. And to the Christian, to the follower of Jesus, where does this hope that you carry seep into the lives of others? Our radical lifestyle and behavior has the potential to cause people to turn to the Lord. Do you get that? A radical lifestyle and behavior has the potential to cause people to turn to Jesus. And so the question is, are we living in such a way that others might see our actions and turn to Jesus? You know, our hope for healing in this world is, is linked to evangelism. We have what other people need. And secondly is community. God allowed the widows to live in a desperate state of community. As widows, their, their social rights were at the lowest of the low. They didn't have a husband. They, and back then, they, they weren't doing any work. They had no one to take care of them. 
So there's these groups of widows who are incredibly vulnerable, who are at the mercy of society. And what happens? The church bands together. They find community with other believers. As we live with attention, I would encourage you, we need to live in community. And then finally, prayer. We continuously contend in prayer for healing. James 5.14 says, Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them, to anoint them with oil. In the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. That's not contradictory to what I've said. Do you know why? Because it's the Lord that does the raising. It's the Lord that does the healing. All we do is we do the praying. So what, what, what does faithfulness look like for you? It looks like prayer. You know that somebody's sick, you offer to pray for them. You pray that they'll be healed. You pray that they come to know Jesus. You pray that they'll fall in love with Jesus. You pray that they will be a conduit of blessing that will see the kingdom of God break into the lives of others around them. Church, our response is to pray. We have got to be a praying church. Will you just close your eyes with me as I, as I close in prayer? And then we're going to move into our time of communion together. God, I pray that wherever we find ourselves in these, in these tensions, that we will not chicken out and run to a prosperity gospel that, that over-promises and under-delivers. It is catastrophic. God, I thank you that the, the Christian hope lies in the resurrection. And because Jesus has been resurrected, we know that so will we be. And God, in the, in the tension and in the pain where we are not seeing healing when we want it, I pray that we would trust in you, that you are sovereign. And where you do choose to bring healing and resurrection, pray that you would be glorified, that we wouldn't have a clue whose name it was that prayed it. Jesus, ultimately we want, want to see your rule and reign come and invade our lives, invade our, our workplaces, invade our communities, invade our families. And we thank you that, that you give this surprising power to heal and that you choose to use ordinary people to proclaim your name, that these towns and these cities may come to know and follow you, Jesus. <laughs>